All right, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, continuing this series, if you're brand new with us, that we've entitled Full Length Mirror. We're walking through the book of James verse by verse, and the reason why we've called it Full Length Mirror is when you think about the purpose of a mirror, we've said this week after week, is it really is threefold. It shows you who you are. Like when you got up this morning and you looked in the mirror, hopefully you didn't look into the mirror and say, I do not recognize that person whatsoever. If you did, it was probably a bad night uh, the to- uh, before, you, before you went to bed. But when you look in the mirror, you recognize who that person is. You may not like who that person is, but you recognize who that person is. That mirror shows you who you are. But it also shows you how you are, like what needs to, ch- what needs to change? How am I doing? How do I look? Shows you how you are. And then, as I just mentioned, it shows you what needs to change. And God's word is referred to as a mirror in James chapter 1. And God's word really does those same things. It shows us who we are. Shows us our need of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That I can't do good enough good to warrant favor from a holy God. I can't be good enough because I am a sinner. And I've fallen short of the glory of God, of the standard of God. So Jesus Christ came in my place. He lived, on the cr- lived a perfect life, died on the cross for my sins, rose again three days later. And if I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm a child of God. I have a relationship with Him. I have a home in heaven forever awaiting me. That The mirror of God's Word shows us who we are. It shows us how we are. How am I doing according to God's word in my walk with the Lord? And then it shows us as well what needs to change. And so often in our physical lives, we start out with great intentions, right? I know I need to change this. I know I need to change this about me. I know I need to change this in in my diet. I know I need to change this about whatever it is as we look into the mirror. And so often, isn't it true? We got great intentions, but we fall short of the transformation. But it's true in our spiritual lives as well. And so what we've been doing is walking through this book, really looking at God's Word on how do we move from good intentions to transformation in our spiritual walk with the Lord. And so this morning we're in chapter 4, we're going to look at these 12 verses. But before we do that, I want you to see this image on the screen. Would this, not, would this characterize your house? Do you ever struggle with everyone just blaming the other person for something that's gone wrong. Now, this cartoon, specifically, you know, the dad is asking who is kicking the table, but you see how everybody, nobody around the table is owning up to doing it, so there must be some type of ghost or something underneath the table doing it. I mean, does that not happen in your home? Think about it. When you're like, okay, whose socks are these lying on the floor? Nobody ever wants to own up to it, so it's like, oh yeah, somebody just came in here, threw some socks on the floor, somehow avoided the alarm system and got out without anything happening. Who's dirty this or dirty that's on the floor? Not mine, not mine, not mine. I mean, this goes on in our house every day, does it not? Where nobody wants to own that they did something wrong. Well, the title of this message this morning is this, The Blame Game. And I'm sure this goes on in every one of our households, but the reality is, is I think it oftentimes happens in our spiritual walk with the Lord as well. And when we look at what James has already had to deal with in this book up to chapter 4, what we see in this book is there's a lot of strife going on with the Jewish Christians that James is writing to. Remember in chapter 2, he's talking about the strife between the rich and the poor and the favoritism that's being shown. 
In the beginning of chapter 3, he deals with people that want to teach, that think that they should teach, when in reality they shouldn't teach. And so there's strife going on there. There's strife with people exercising selfish ambition and jealousy based on what someone else has versus what they have. And we've seen already through this book that there's all this strife going on in the Christian communities that James is writing to, but lest we be too high and mighty, the same type of stuff that goes on in our homes, it's the same type of stuff that we have to deal with in this church and churches all across the country. Why? Because when you have two sinful people living under one roof, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have conflict. It's just a reality. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 here in a moment, here's the idea that I want you to get today. It's this, that when I choose to blame, I am choosing also not to change. That when you make the choice to blame, and I make the choice to blame, I'm also making the choice not to change. Look at verse 1 with me. James starts out this way. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So obviously, this is going on in the Christian communities that James is writing to. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because... You do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or is against God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in? in us. That's why I want you to get this idea this morning, that when I choose to blame, I am choosing not to change. Because at the end of the day, here's really the primary motivator for why I blame someone else for the wrong that I've done. The primary motivator why I choose to blame someone else is because I don't want to change my behavior. And so I'm not going to own up that I actually might have something to do with the negative consequences that I am experiencing right now in my life. Like maybe the reason why your marriage is not working in the way that it should is it's not your wife's fault or your husband's fault, maybe there's something that you have done that has contributed to the negative consequences you're experiencing. Maybe it's not your mom or dad that is the reason why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. Maybe it's because of the choices that you have made. See, when I choose to blame, I'm also choosing not to change. I'm choosing not to ask, what have I done to experience this. Now, this isn't true in every situation. There's situations where, whether it may be gossip, whether it's abuse, whatever it is, and and there's no reason why this was done to you. And so I understand that, but I'm very careful. Let's take those issues as serious as they are, and I'm not minimizing them. Let's put those to the side, because immediately when I say, well, that's not always the case, the rest of us are like, oh, there's the door where I can escape. 
Because what James is pointing out is, listen, a lot of the strife that is going on in your Christian communities right now is not because of someone else, it's because of you. And let's not choose to blame, but let's make the choice to change. So what I want to do this morning is I want to answer this question. If, when I choose to blame, I'm choosing not to change, here's what I want to answer. How do we make the choice to change rather than to blame? And I think there's four ways, and here's the first one. Number one, admit that you, like if you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to do so, right? You, Y-O-U, in all caps. Admit that you are your biggest problem. I mean, did you catch it when we were reading verses 1 through 3, how many times the word you or your is mentioned? An overwhelming number. Twelve times in three verses, you or your is mentioned. Look at it again. What causes quarrels and Fights among you, is it not this? It's your passions that are at war within you. Not someone else's passions, not somebody else's fault. Your passions at war within you. You covet and not contain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Admit that you are your biggest problem. So here's what I want us to do. Just take out your right hand. I know some of you may be left-handed, but just stick with me. Take out your right hand, get out your pointer finger, put the other ones away, and I want you to take that finger and I want you to put it square on your chest. Not point to the person next to you, some of you. Point to you. And say this phrase with me here. I'm I'm gonna say it and then let's say it together. I am my biggest problem. Let's say it together. I am my biggest problem. We got to get that. Do you know how many counseling centers just across this city, and we would even say it in our church that when you, just think about it, when you have a couple come in, and you have a couple come in and the husband and wife are coming in, 90% of the time they're coming in thinking, he's my biggest problem. She's my biggest problem. This person's my biggest problem, whatever it is. And that's not the place that we start. What James is stressing is, listen, don't make the natural choice to blame. You need to say, God, where do I need to change? And if I'm going to do that, I need to live with the reality that I am my biggest problem. So what's at the root of that conflict in my relationships with others, and in my relationship with God. Because James really deals with both aspects of that in verses 1 through 3. I mean, what's at the root of me wanting to blame rather than to change? Here it is. It's my selfish, sinful desires. Does it not say that in verse 1? It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you. And then look at the way James answers it in verse 1. He says, it's your passions that are at war within you. It's my selfish desires that is at the root cause of the conflict that I'm experiencing in my relationship with others and even in my relationship with God. It's my selfish desires right here, not over there, here, here. 
And I say that because that word passion is an interesting word. It's literally where we derive our English word hedonism. Some of you are like, well, what does that mean? Here's what hedonism is. It's the belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. Isn't that our society today? Like if you go around and you poll the average person and you say, man, what's the ultimate goal in your life? You know what most people will say? For me to be what? Happy. Like that at the end of the day is the motivating factor in my life. I want to be happy in my marriage. I want to be happy with my family. I want to be happy at my job. I want to be happy in this dating relationship. I want to be happy, 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 happy. I love being happy. Nothing wrong with being happy. But we are fed every single day that the chief end of my life is my happiness, which is just a candy-coated way of saying the chief end of my life is me getting my way the way that I want it when I want it. Just a nice veneer that we put over that. And James says, the passions that are at war within me are those selfish desires, which get this, selfish desires are sinful desires. My selfish, sinful desires that are at war, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, with those selfless desires that the Holy Spirit is stirring up in me. That I don't live for myself. I live for the one who gave me salvation, who made me, who loved me. Selfless desires. But those are at war constantly and they manifest them in the choices that I make and when I'm choosing to blame I'm making the choice not to change I'm making the choice not to realize that I am my biggest problem that any conflict in a relationship with someone else starts rather than me pointing the finger saying what responsibility do I have in this let me give you a formula or an equation to help you understand this. It's a relational equation. See, some of us in here are experiencing tremendous conflict in our relationships, whatever that may be, with other people. And when we understand this equation, it's going to help us tremendously. It's this, that selfishness plus unfulfilled expectations always equals conflict. Just like one plus one is always going to equal two. See, when my selfishness is driving my desires and driving my decisions, that's also going to affect the expectations that I have on someone to expect something of them that they're never going to be able to fulfill. Why? Because my selfish desires say, I want it my way, the way that I want it, how I want it, when I want it, and that's always going to result in unfulfilled expectations and will always result in conflict. This equation is true for your relationships. I mean, that's found in verses 1 and 2. It's also true, get this, in your relationship with the Lord. Because James says in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Look at it in verse 3. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I wonder how many of us this morning were like, man, I pray. I've even done what you said. I pray out loud, alone, with a list, on my knees. But I wonder what's on that list. 
See, I wonder how many of us are treating God like some fancy genie in the bottle that if we rub it three times and get on our knees with our list and we even say it out loud that God's supposed to grant us everything that we want. And we're sitting here this morning today and we're like, man, I'm, I'm really upset with God and I'm bitter towards God and this whole praying to God thing doesn't work. And I wonder if the reason why God is not answering the things that you have written down is because they're driven out of selfishness, not selflessness. And so you're wanting to pinpoint the finger towards God and say, God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you showing yourself to be faithful? Why aren't you following through? And the, the blame is not to be on God, but it's on you because everything on your list is all about God doing what you want him to do on your timetable the way that you want it. And James says, that's why you're not receiving. It's because you're asking wrongly it's to spend it on your passions, your selfish, sinful desires. And so the first thing that we need to understand this morning, if we're going to move to actually say, man, I want to make the choice to change rather than to blame, is number one, we need to admit that I am my biggest problem. Here's the second thing, and it's found in verses 4 and 5. Accept that God will never bless your cheating heart. we got to accept that. Look at what James says in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Now, can we stop there? If you're asking me, man, if you're going to confront someone of something that they're doing wrongly, uh, Johnny, how should I approach that conversation? I'm probably not going to say you start off saying, you adulterous person. I'm pretty sure there's no book written by human person outside of what we have here in James, and these are God's words through James, that anyone would suggest that. But what I find interesting is James is not mincing words here because God wants us to understand the seriousness of what's going on here. He says, listen, when you are choosing your selfish desires over God's selfless desires, you are committing adultery. And he says, you adulterous people. We're going to touch on this more. It's like, wake up. If you weren't awake yet, now I'm calling you an adulterer, so wake up. That's what James is doing here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, is against God and God's will and God's purpose for you? That's what that means. And he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's of no purpose that the scripture says, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? Here's what you need to understand. James is not saying, don't be friends with people in the world. If he was saying that, he would be contradicting so many other passages of Scripture that we have, like 2 Corinthians 5 that says we're ambassadors, that we're representatives of God, that we, the reason why we're here is to tell other people that don't yet know about Jesus, about that his, of his love for them and his life for them and his death for them and his resurrection for them so that they can have salvation. It's not saying that at all. But what it is saying, it's saying friendship with the world, the cosmos, the world system, the society, philosophy of society that is hedonistic. We looked at that already that says, man, at the end of the day, all that, all that life is about is your happiness. I mean, Satan was selling that to Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3? Oh, God's trying to sell you short. That's why he told you not to eat of this truth. He, he's not concerned about your happiness. When we know that was a lie, that God wanted them to be happy and blessed, but that was found in obedience, not disobedience to what God said. 
That's what James is talking about. That when I get in bed with the world system that my life is going to be ruled by what I want, when I want it, how I want it, that that is in direct opposition to God. And listen to me, when I am living like that, and if you're living like that today, and man, I come to church, I open up the Bible, I go to life group, whatever it is, but in reality, I know that, man, it's about my way, it's about my happiness, I really discount anything that God says in there that contradicts with the way I want to live my life, that if you're living like that and you are a child of God, you need to understand that God is never going to bless those decisions in your life. Not going to happen. As hard as the word that that is, it's not going to happen. And that's James's point. And what we got to ask ourselves this morning is a sobering question as we look at our lives today and ask ourselves, am I having an affair on God? Like that thought, we would be like, man, I can never imagine having an affair on my husband or my wife. Can never imagine having an affair by doing that on my family. How many of us are committing adultery with God? That we're getting in bed with a world system that is so contrary to what we know to be right in God's word, but we're believing and believing this lie that somehow I can live my way according to my rules when I want it, how I want it, and somehow God's going to still bless those decisions in my life. I've never met anyone yet who lives that way and at some point doesn't reach a point that say, man, how did I get here and what was I thinking? That's James's point, that if we're going to make the choice to change rather than to blame, then we need to admit that we are our biggest problem, that we also need to accept that, accept that God will never bless your cheating heart. And here's the third thing, and it's found in verses 8 through 10. We need to approach God with humility. See, James has given some hard language in these verses up to this point, but look at what he says in verse 6. I mean, verse 4 says, you adulterous people, if you're living your life and you're in bed with the world's philosophy rather than being obedient to what you know God's word says in your life, you're, being adulter- you're, you're committing adultery against God. But then I love how he starts verse 6 and he says, but he gives more grace. How awesome is that? But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That if you're here this morning... And you've been living your life blaming everybody else for everything in your life. And you're like, man, I haven't accepted that I'm my biggest problems. And, and I, I haven't admitted that. And I haven't up to this point accepted that God's not going to bless a cheating heart. And I'm seeing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm convicted this morning of, of the, me trying to live some double life and believing that I can serve two masters when God's word clearly says I can. Then I want you to understand this morning that it doesn't end there. That you can approach God with humility. Not pride, but humility. And we gotta, we got to be clear on what humility is. 
Because humility is not a personality. Sometimes we think that if a guy or a gal is introverted and they're very quiet and, and they don't process things out loud and, 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 and they're just the most quiet person in the room, then therefore they're the most humble person in the room. And if we're introverted this morning, maybe we, we can even think that. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty humble because I'm not loud and I'm not boisterous and I don't want to be the center of attention and all of this stuff. And then you have someone who's extroverted. Some of you are extroverted and you process everything out loud and you're loud and you're the life of the party and everything. And we can easily look at that and say, well, that person must be very proud because they're just extroverted. Humility is not a personality. I can be the most introverted, reserved person and be full of pride in my heart. And I can be the most extroverted person and be too loud and, and process things out loud too much and be the most humble person inside. So what is humility? I think it involves two things. Number one, it involves an awareness. And second of all, it involves action. Here's what I mean by that. Humility first starts with awareness. An awareness of who I am and who God is. Because when I'm aware of who God is, then I'm also aware of who I am not. See, it starts with an awareness. God, I realize I'm not God. God, I realize that I'm not the one calling the shots. God, I realize that I'm small. You're great. God, I'm, there's an awareness there that I realize who you are and who I am not. But it doesn't stop there. Then it leads to action. Because humility is a do thing, not a feel thing. It's an action. And don't you love how when you look at this passage of Scripture in James 4, specifically in verses 6 through 10, we see that awareness and action being emphasized because the first thing that James starts off with after he confronts these Jewish Christians with their sin is he says, listen to me, understand this, this, like Romans 2, this, this, Reality about who God is and his loving kindness and his grace ought to lead you to repentance. So let me make you aware of who God is. He is a God of grace. And the first way that I approach God with humility is I have an awareness of who he is. He's a God of grace. And the beautiful thing about that is his grace transcends my sin. There's no sin too great that God's grace can't cover. Some have called it this way. It's, a, it's, a, it's the gravity of grace. It's that idea that grace flows from its highest point and reaches the lowest point. That God's grace flows from God and you're never too low or you're never too far to where God's grace cannot run towards you. Your marriage can be in the absolute ditch because you've been constantly pointing and thinking it's the other person's fault. And here's the beautiful thing. You're like, but it is. He or she did this. He or she did that. But the beautiful thing is when both people in a marriage are both believing that they're their greatest problems, you know what? That stuff gets taken care of. When a family, when a mom or a dad and a child or however they old realize that I'm my biggest problem, both sides get taken care of. When a friendship, when they realize that, both sides get taken care of. Whatever it is, when people in the church realize that, both sides get taken care of. 
But it's an awareness that motivates me to exercise that humility as, man, God's grace is greater than any part of my sin. It's that law, it's that gravity of grace that it flows from the highest point and reaches to the depths of whatever it is. God's grace is greater than my sin. God's grace is greater than my weakness. God's grace is greater than insurmountable circumstances. God's grace is greater than whatever I deem impossible. Because he gives more grace. And this morning, that needs to be the motivating factor for you to confess your sin and say, God, I'm going to admit that I'm my biggest problems. I'm going to accept that you won't bless an adulterous heart. And I'm going to approach you with humility because I am going to relish the, with the awareness that you give more grace. That's the type of God you are. And that awareness motivates an action that what we find in verses 7 in verse 10, it motivates an action that says, Lord, I want to place you, place myself under your authority. I want to submit myself under your leadership. I want to take my life, and rather than it be above your word, God, I want to place my life underneath your word. God, I want to realize that you're the one that's on the throne, that I serve you, not you serving me. God, I want to understand that true blessing and true joy that outlasts a circumstance rests in you, not my way, but your way. God, you're wanting to bless me with things that last and contentment and those things that I'm searching for in my way that I'm never finding, that God, those things are found in you. And so God, I want to submit myself under your authority, that that's my action, but because that action is being driven by an awareness that you give more grace. And when we submit ourselves under his authority, what happens is is we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we're able to resist the devil, and he flees from us. But that awareness also brings an action that says, not only do I place myself under his authority, but by placing myself underneath his authority, I'm also running to him for forgiveness. I'm calling my sin, sin. Do you see that in these verses, in verses 8 and 9? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Don't you love that? That no matter how far, that maybe in my life, man, God was right here and I was right here and we were walking in arm to arm together and we were serving the Lord, but over time I started to get caught up into thinking that my way was better and I've drifted away from the Lord. Oh, God hasn't moved, but I was the one moving, and I've gotten so far away from the Lord, but the beauty of understanding God's grace is there's no distance that's too far to where I can't turn around and walk back towards God, and God's standing there with open arms. James says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners. He talks about weeping and mourning that your laughter is turned to gloom, not in some Not in some, like, let me just beat myself up because that's what I'm supposed to do in giving penance for my sin. But it's the weeping in the morning to understand, let me not be dismissive of my sin. Let me not just treat it as, oh, no big deal. No, no, no. I'm going to see my sin the way that God sees it. I'm going to ask forgiveness of it. I'm going to stop being flippant with the way that I'm living. And I'm going to mourn over it and see it for what it is. But understanding that when I do that, God gives more grace. That's how we approach God with humility. And here's the last thing. It's found in verses 11 and 12. Fourth way I 
choose to change rather than to blame. Number four, I avoid judging others' motives. Can we all just admit right now that that's a hard thing not to do? Can we just acknowledge that? Thank you for the one person that said amen. Everyone else agreed with you. Look at what it says in verses 11 and 12 as we close out this passage. It says, do not speak evil against one another's brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What he's saying here is stop acting like you're the one that makes the rules. There's one judge, his name is God. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. There's nothing that avoids, that, that, that slips under his radar. He's aware of every single thing going on at all times in the world around us and the universe around us. But you're not the one that makes the rules. Man, if you've got kids, how many times is that? Have you had to deal with that one? Right, The oldest wanting to boss around the younger and the younger saying, you're not the boss, right? Because there's something inside of us that wants to be the one to make the rules. You ever remember in elementary school, you're playing with that one kid who wants to change the rules in the middle of the game because it's not going his way and you're just like, that guy drives you nuts. What James is saying, stop trying to change the rules, you're not God. Stop judging other people's motives and focus on what you can change. And what you can change through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within you if you're a child of God is you. Trust me, if we all had magic wands and we could change everybody else, that would be a beautiful thing, would it not? But the same power that resides in those people who are followers of Jesus Christ resides in you. And your responsibility and mine is to focus on me. And that doesn't mean that we don't approach others who are going away from the Lord in love and in grace. But let me tell you something. Before you go that way, you better check your own heart first that I'm not judging other people's Motives, because if I'm doing that, it is in opposition to living in humility, not in harmony. Judging other people's motives and living with humility will never work. They're an oxymoron, they're oil and water, they'll never mix. Matthew 7, 3 is a great passage of Scripture that I'm sure probably everybody knows here if you spend any time in church. You may not know the reference, but you'll know it when I say it, where it says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So here's what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for how I see myself. 
I'm responsible to open up God's word and to look in the mirror of God's word and say, God, I need to recognize that I'm my biggest problem. God, I need to examine my heart and see if I'm falling into this trap of thinking that somehow you can bless a cheating heart. Wait a minute, God, I need to make sure that I'm approaching you with humility every day, that I have an awareness of who you are and I'm submitting myself to you every day based on that awareness that I'm keeping a short account and confessing my sin to you on a daily basis when I want to go my own way. God, I need to make sure that I see myself the way that you desire me to see myself. See, that's what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for how I view others. Because I can always find someone who's worse off than me. I can always find someone to say, well, I'm not that far gone. Where's the humility in that? Where's the selflessness in that? And I can choose how to respond. See, I just want to take a moment and, you know, this week as I was looking through this passage of Scripture, I was like even thinking to myself, man, what's the statistic? I wonder if there's a statistic out there of the percentage of people that blame others for something that's their fault. And then I kind of laughed at myself because I was like, well, there's a reason why there's no statistic on the Internet for that because the answer is 100%. 100%. There's not one person in here who doesn't struggle with this. And so I want us to take time this morning and just examine our hearts, just as the music's playing in the background, and let's go to God and say, God, where am I not believing that I'm my biggest problem? Where am I fooling myself into thinking that you'll bless my cheating heart? to give time for you to approach God with humility this morning and rest and confess in the reality that God gives more grace regardless of how far you may have drifted. And then we need to say, God, where am I judging others' motives and judging people with a different level of grace than you give me? Let's, let's just examine our hearts right now.